All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Ezekiel chapter 12. You need to make a couple quick announcements. One is there will be a after-service reception for Chris Helding, the gentleman who was just here, uh, out in the outdoor lobby, out those doors and kind of to the side east lawn of the church. Uh, please go out there and especially if he did something that was really meaningful to you, um, go share with him and encourage him and congratulate him or whatever it is you feel is appropriate. I, I wouldn't say slapping him is appropriate if you were considering that, by the way. Also, uh, secondly, um, in uh, two Sundays from now, we will have, I think it's at 6.30, but it's at— I'm sure it's at nextsteps.org. Um, uh, the time for the congregational meeting, that will be uh, a specifically called congregational meeting only to vote on our uh, associate pastor candidate. The preceding Thursday and Friday, there will be some online stuff you can also connect with online to, to hear him, to listen. Um, you can come here and he'll be on the screen, or you can stay at your home and he'll be on the screen, but he will be on the screen because he's in Australia and can only come here if he's, like, leaving the country for a job. So uh, there will be a couple nights of candidating at the congregational meeting itself that Sunday. He'll, um, he'll share a little bit. He'll preach a short sermon so you can hear him talk. And then uh, there'll be a short Q&A, and then we're going to vote. And voting for an associate pastor at High Point has to have a two-thirds majority of members present. Does that make sense? Sweet. All right. <clears throat> you ready for more Ezekiel? This is going to be so good. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm reading the NIV, but I'm, I'm reading out the older version, so there might be a couple words different than what you see if you're using a pew Bible or a different translation. Ezekiel chapter 12. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, you are living among a rebellious people. They have eyes to see, but do not see. They have ears to hear, but do not hear. For they are a rebellious people. Therefore, son of man, pack your belongings for exile, and in the daytime, as they watch, set out and go from there to another place. Perhaps they will understand, though they are a rebellious house. During the daytime, while they watch, bring out your belongings packed for exile. And in the evening, while they are watching, go out like those who go into exile. While they watch, dig through the wall and take your belongings out through it. Put them on your shoulder as they are watching and carry them out at dusk. Cover your face so that you cannot see the land, for I have made you a sign to the house of Israel. So I did as I was commanded. During the day, I brought out my things packed for exile, and then in the evening, I dug through the wall with my hands, and I took my belongings out at dusk, carrying them on my shoulders while they watched. And in the morning, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, did not that rebellious house of Israel ask you, what are you doing? Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. This oracle concerns the prince in Jerusalem and the whole house of Israel who are there. Say to them, I am a sign to you. As I have done, so it will be done to them. They will go into exile and captivity. The prince among them will put things on his shoulder at dusk and leave, and a hole will be dug in the wall for him to go through, and he will cover his face so that he cannot see the land. <clears throat> and I will spread out my net for him, and he will be caught in my snare, and I will bring him to Babylonia, the land of the Chaldeans, but he will not see it, and there he will die. I will scatter to the winds all those around him, his staff and all his troops, and I will pursue them with drawn sword. They will know that I am the Lord." when I disperse them among the nations and scatter them through the countries. But I will spare few of them from the sword, famine, and plague, so that in the nations where they go, they may acknowledge all their detestable practices. Then they will know that I am the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, 
Tremble as you eat your food and shudder in fear as you drink your water. Say to the people of the land, this is what the sovereign Lord says about those living in Jerusalem and those in the land of Israel. They will eat their food in anxiety and drink their water in despair. For their land will be stripped of everything in it because of the violence of all who live there. The inhabited towns will be laid waste and the land will be desolate. And then you will know that I am the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, what is this proverb you have in the land of Israel? Quote, the days go by and every vision comes to nothing. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I'm going to put an end to this proverb and they will no longer quote it in Israel. Say to them, the days are near when every vision will be fulfilled, for there will be no more false visions or flattering divinations among the people of Israel. But I, the Lord, will speak what I will, and it shall be fulfilled without delay. For in your days, your, you rebellious house, I will fulfill whatever I say, declares the sovereign Lord. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, the house of Israel is saying, the vision he sees is for many years from now, and he prophesies about the distant future. Therefore say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. None of my words will be delayed any longer. Whatever I say will be fulfilled, declares the sovereign Lord. More fun in Ezekiel. <clears throat> One of the things I've noticed as I've gotten a little bit older is that um, some of my hearing is starting to go already. Um, not like I can't hear people or I can't hear things. I still hear pretty well. If I'm listening for deer in the woods, I can hear them, that kind of thing. But I have trouble distinguishing, like if there's more noises going on, like picking out that one voice. They say that happens like in your 40s, right? And um, it's, it's a bit of a problem. I have to keep telling my kids, I'll be like, they'll be sitting next to me in the car. And if we're driving like a window open or there's like noise from, from the outside, I have, to, I have to look at them and say, you have to point your face at me when you talk to point your face at me. It's terrible when we're paddling in canoes, and they're like 12 feet in front of you facing the other way. It's so annoying, because they're trying to talk to me, and I'm like, I, I'm sorry. I just, I can't, I can't hear you, right? Um, this also bothers me with children who wear, like, headphones, and they believe those headphones are a universal explanation for why they pay no attention to you as a parent. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, I have headphones on. It's like, I don't care. Like, when I make sound waves, you're supposed to get them. Do what you need to do. I don't know. I, they're, the new technology they have now where they have, I got you, you know, these earbuds where like you can push a button. They're like, you can hear what's around you. And I'm like, thank you for telling me that. And you can literally hear people talk to you through them, which is nice. I like that. I think there must be some parents being involved in like, you know, it's like these tech people are like, they get out and they're like little Google programs. Like, we don't care about families. And then they like get married and they have three kids. So like, my kids are annoying the crap out of me. We're going to design something where you can hear your parents through the thing. <laughs> you know? <clears throat> Sorry, it's the only funny part of the sermon. Okay, so um, one of the problems with like starting to lose some of your senses like that is that uh, your hearing doesn't care the importance of what's being said. Like when your hearing kind of goes a little bit like that, it doesn't go, oh, this thing that person's saying is really important. We're going to hear that. And this other thing that's completely trivial, we'll just let that go. That doesn't happen. You kind of don't hear everything about the same. Right? You got that? And so uh, one of the problems with what's called in this passage rebelliousness, or what's called earlier in Ezekiel stubbornness, or what's called in the book of Proverbs and Psalms mocking, right? Because mocking is just being stubborn against the truth. It's a way of being stubborn against the truth. Um, that all those kinds of things that come out of human pride, 
that flow out of human self-involvement rather than humility and faith towards the Lord. It doesn't start with what Proverbs calls the fear of the Lord. Um, is that it makes us dull and deaf and, and unseeing towards, like, most truths the, the same. Like, when, when you give yourself, to, when you said you're not going to do what the Lord says, you, you're not negatively ordered by the fear of the Lord and positively by the love of the Lord, and you don't understand the full counsel of God, you're not oriented like it says in Hebrews 12 to God's good, pleasing, and perfect will, right? What happens is, is there's a kind of thing that happens to you because pride, self-involvement, instead of the fear of the Lord, produces pride. Because pride is full of self-involvement, it doesn't see with wisdom and it doesn't pursue wisdom, so it produces a rebellious attitude towards God's dictates, what God says is true about reality. That rebelliousness then leads to an insensitivity to reality around you. Because part of rebelliousness and stubbornness is you expect the world to conform to you rather than you to the world, which is a problem. And that insensitivity to the world around you, the complete delusion that it should conform to you rather than you to it, produces what Scripture calls deafness and blindness. You begin to behave as though you really can't see. And it's not God's fault. God explicitly says these people have eyes to see, but they don't see. And they have ears to hear, and they don't hear. It's not God's fault. It's not like we don't have eyes. Or we don't have ears. You have intelligence. You have conscience. You have a moral capacity. You have everything that you need. It's, it's all in you to see and to hear. And everybody always has had those things. We just don't do them because we're a rebellious house. So one of the things that God goes over in this passage is that he's called them a rebellious house. He's already called them stubborn, right? But one of these he's trying to make clear in this passage even more again and again in different language in different ways is that rebelliousness must lead to blindness. It must lead to a, a moral and spiritual deafness that will affect everything in your life. Right? Proverbs 20, 12 says, um, Ears that hear and eyes that see, the Lord has made them both. That's not just a scientific claim. Right? That's, that's a wisdom statement. He's, he's not saying just that God creationally has made eyes that can see and ears that can hear. But when a human being lives in the world as it really is, and actually sees what is really there morally and spiritually, and therefore can acquire wisdom, which the whole book of Proverbs is about, that is an act of the Lord. And, Christianly speaking, only the Lord. Now, um, you can see this also in the book of Jeremiah. So, so Jeremiah is Ezekiel's contemporary. So Ezekiel is in Babylon, right? 350 miles as the crow flies or 700 as the man walks is Jerusalem. In Jerusalem is Jeremiah. They're not listening to Jeremiah any more than they're listening to Ezekiel. But they're contemporaries, and Jeremiah is saying the exact same thing 350 miles away in Jerusalem. He says to the people there, God says this to Jeremiah, announce this to the house of Jacob and proclaim it to Judah. That's the different tribes of Israel. Like, basically, it's just a way of talking, saying the Jewish people, right? Hear this, you foolish and senseless people who have eyes to see but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. Should you not fear me, declares the Lord, should you not tremble in my presence? Now think about, first of all, look at the parallelism. 
right? When we interpret a passage, especially in poetic form, we should be looking for either synonymous parallelism, parallelism where they mean basically the same thing, or antinomial parallelism, where they mean basically the opposite. Here, it's the opposite, right? One is, you have eyes, but you don't see. You have ears, but you don't hear, right? What's the opposite of that? Shouldn't you fear me? Shouldn't you tremble at my presence? So, what is the operative thing that allows eyes that don't see and ears that don't hear? What causes that and what remedies it? And God is saying the thing that causes it is a lack of the fear of the Lord. And the thing that would therefore remedies it is the presence of the fear of the Lord. Ironically, <clears throat> it says, Jesus says, you should fear the person. Don't fear the person who can kill you, and after they can kill you, can't do anything more to you. Instead, fear the one who can kill you, and after he kills you, throw your body into hell. Why, why does he say that? And the answer is, is that there is one fear that eliminates all other fears. There's one fear that gives you courage in every situation. If you fear the Lord, who is the good, sovereign king, right, the only one you should fear, and the only one who deserves to be rightly feared in a positive and negative way, then all other fears are eliminated because, right, Romans says, if God is for us, who can stand against us? Can either height or depth or angels or demons or this life or the next or anything keep us from the love of God as revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord? Can anything keep us from God vindicating us, saving us, helping us, rescuing us, redeeming us? Can anything do that? If God is with us, can anyone be against us? And the, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is, of course not. Right? And therefore, if the fear of the Lord and therefore our devotion to the Lord grounds us, it will ground us in humility. We will reject rebellion. We will be able to hear and see. We'll be able to acquire wisdom. We'll know our origin, our destiny, our meaning, our morality. We'll be changed. It will grow. We'll have significance. We will be exactly where we need to be. And even if it's difficult, we'll be okay. Ironically, notice, he says, shouldn't you tremble in my presence? Do you notice what Ezekiel said is the ultimate end if you don't tremble in God's presence? Right? He said, you will eat your bread with trembling, and you will drink your water with anxiety. If you don't fear the Lord, it's not like you're not going to live in fear. If you, don't if you don't fear the Lord, you will live in fear. That's the, that's the paradox of most truly spiritual things. You think, well, I'm not going to fear the Lord. That sounds regressive. Yeah, except the fear of the Lord is the only thing that can truly ground you so deeply that you really can have courage in the face of all other fears so that you don't go through all of life in all the practical ways, even in the place you think you'd be most safe from anxiety when you're eating because you'll be afraid of everything because you should be afraid of everything. And so this passage goes over four kinds of rebellion-induced blindness. Right now, I'm not talking about all human blindness. This is specifically four kinds, and it's not all of the kinds. It's just these four that are induced by or created in the human soul by a rebellious attitude towards God, a stubbornness that we won't repent of, a lack of humility that flows out of the fear of the Lord, okay? The first is that we become blind and deaf to our coming slavery. The people in Israel really still thought they weren't going to go into exile. Can you believe that? They really thought that. Zedekiah, who is the prince who's king in Israel at this point, had already rebelled against the king of Babylon. The king of Babylon had already run two campaigns in which he'd completely destroyed the nation of Egypt. Now, if you could destroy Egypt, can you destroy Israel? Hmm, let's think about this. 
right? At the Battle of Carchemish, not 50 years earlier, right, what was left of the Assyrian Empire and all of the great empire of Egypt stood against Babylon to stop them, thinking they could. And they failed completely. The Medo-Persians and the Babylonians wiped them out. In tiny Israel, Zedekiah got in his head somehow that the Babylonian's king just would be so focused on other things that if he rebelled, he just wouldn't pay any attention. And if he did, you know, we'd be fine. We, like, we have a really safe city here in Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is a hard city to assault. And so he defied the most powerful empire in the world. And he thought, what did he think? Well, he didn't. He was blind. You understand? He was blind. You see, we think we'll turn from God, but we won't do anything stupid. Well, turning from God is stupid. And so the idea that it won't lead to more foolishness is probably not a good assumption. It will lead to increasing foolishness. That will lead to increasingly bad actions that will lead you to give both your character and the circumstances of your life to things you can't control, don't understand it, that are affecting you more than you're affecting them. You'll become a victim of your own character and a victim of your own circumstances increasingly, which will lead toward your practical enslavement. And you won't see it coming. You won't perceive it developing, but it will be there nonetheless. Because in turning from the fear of the Lord and being a rebellious house— we confirm the definite coming of our own slavery and assuring ourselves that we will be blind and deaf to it until it has its ropes around us. Blindness that comes from rebelliousness will lead to that. The second is, is that um, we'll be blind and deaf to the coming of an- the coming anxiety. Um, it says, Say the people of the land, this is what the Sovereign Lord says about those living in Jerusalem and the land of Israel. They will eat their food in anxiety, and they will drink their water in despair. Right? Um, It's—have <coughs> you ever intentionally done what you knew was wrong or turned from the Lord in something because you just decided you were gonna, and you so convinced yourself that that's what you needed to do or that it would be good in some way or that like— it must be somebody else's bad religious interpretation telling you not to do it, and you really convinced yourself that enough that you had peace about it, right? And you're like, I'm going to do this. And what this says is not, you can't be blind enough to, to feel peace in your heart. Human beings have an incredible capacity to deceive ourselves. Listen, I cannot tell you as a pastor how many times somebody who professes to be a Christian, who has read the scriptures, who has listened to biblical preaching, who knows what God has spoken and shown about himself relative to lots of things. In this present day and age, it's probably more sexual stuff than anything else, but it could be greed. It could be all—it could be all kinds of things, right? And they're just like, I'm just going to go in this direction, and I'm just going to do it, and quit being judgy. I have peace about it. God told me it was fine, and I'm going to—and I just—I like, I know that this is the path for me. Right? And, and all that's left for me as a pastor is I'm, I have to then take the role of Ezekiel and prophesy that they will eat their bread in terror and they will drink their water in anxiety. Like, I'm not disputing that your internal psychological state at this moment is that you have peace about it. Your, your capacity and my capacity for self-deception is legendary. Um— but you will get to when reality catches up with you and your blindness leads you into enough traps. What happens is 
the lack of the fear of the Lord will lead to right fears of all the things you are walking into and all of the fruit of the poisoned tree of rejecting the good, pleasing, perfect, loving will of God. Right? You, you'll be blind to the coming terror and anxiety and the fear that will come from what you've chosen for yourself. The third is, is that it makes us blind and deaf to flattering lies. The, when you, as you walk away from the fear of the Lord, you walk away from the wisdom of the Lord, you walk away from the candor of the Lord, his direct truthfulness, the way he orders the good and right things. And the minute those things become relative to you and you start playing around the edges and you start feeling around and doing, doing what you want, what happens is you become self-involved such that you really don't see. And what happens is, is that when people are willing to lie to you and flatter you in positive ways, your willingness to believe it goes through the roof. It's through the roof. You'll believe anything. As long as it says you're good. I, one of the things I want you to notice is that most of the false prophetic words in the Bible are positive. Do you understand that? And most of the lies <clears throat> that really destroy our lives are predicated on a positive statement about what that lie will do for you. Right? Most of the lies where you can define yourself from yourself, I'm this, I'm, I'm whatever I say I am. Right? And I'm not just picking on like, people say that about their gender or something. I mean, like, I don't have to be a generous person because I work really hard. Right? Or I can, like, I can treat my kid like this because I work really hard and like, I provide everything for this family. And I, right? There's lots of ways in which we like we take some little truth and we make that the bigger truth and then we, we like tell ourselves some story about ourselves and we let other people be like, you know, we'll go out with our friends and be like, look, you work hard for that family. You, you do so much for that family. Basically saying like, yeah, you have some huge flaw that everybody in your family is paying for that you could deal with and that could change and it would make your marriage more intimate. It would help you be a better parent, all the kinds of things. But listen, you work hard enough that you shouldn't have to be a good person. Like those are the kinds of lies we tell ourselves and the lies we tell each other. And the amount of flattery, so culturally we're now moving to a place where you could say the worst things possible about a human being who's outside your tribe, but within your tribe, the responsibility you have to flatter people and tell them lies is extremely high because what is love in a culture that's relativistic? It's affirmation. It's the only thing there can be in a relativistic culture. If what's true about me is what I say is true about me, then what's your role when I say something that's true about me? It's to affirm it. That's, that's your only role, right? And, the, and, the, and one of the reasons why God becomes more resistible in that kind of a culture is because he seems way more out of step with what a good person would be because God doesn't play that. He just doesn't play that. He's like, nope, sorry. I will tell you something loving, but when he says to Ezekiel, he says, Ezekiel, I'm going to prepare you to talk to these people. He doesn't say, I'm going to make you so kind and sweet and like sensitive that you're going to like coax them towards me? He's like, no, here's what's going to happen. They're rebellious and they're hard. And I'm going to make you harder than them. Right? He said, you know, I don't know if you know this. He says the exact same thing to Jeremiah. These people are hard. They're not going to listen. I'm going to make you harder than them. Right? I mean, think about this. Does that work in parenting? Like when you have like a little immature kid who's being of a little butt— and they just like, they, like they, they decide they're going to control your family by just they can't be pleased. Doesn't matter what you do for them. Doesn't matter. Put a roof over their head. Give them food. It's warmth. You're nice. Doesn't matter. They can't be pleased. Just always like just, ugh, grouchy. And like, they, and they're like doing it because they're like, 
you know, sometimes it's like the younger kids, and they just want to have some power. It's like the older kid, and they're trying to differentiate from their parents. But they're like, like, does it work to coax them? Oh, sweetie, are you sure? Oh, you know you want. Let's have some ice cream. Right? You're negotiating with a terrorist, okay? Like, (laughs) that does not work. Kids, like kids, when your parents, when you like get started with your parents and they get harder than you, they're doing that because they love you. Because they don't want you to grow up to be a rebellious, blind, deaf person in reality that rejects the Lord, has no humility, and is a trial to everybody around you, and nobody likes you. Right? One of the reasons parents parent you when they don't like you isn't just because they don't care. It's because if they don't like you, nobody else is going to like you if you behave that way. Do you understand? That's not even a religious point. That's just a, like a human thing, right? But we don't, we don't just want that. We, we, now, listen, God is always going to love you, but we want to help shape you so that it's easy for God to enjoy you. Does that make sense? That's what we want. That's what you should want to be, and that's what we should all want to be for other people. We should want to be the sort of person that uh, we are good for other people, right? And, um, he says about this, right? He, he, like, people say, listen, all these prophecies that happen in Israel, they never happen. They never come true. And God doesn't say, you know, you're right. I say things in the distant future, and they just don't happen. That's not, no, he's like, he's like, you know why they don't come true? Because the things that you're counting as prophetic words is flattering nonsense and lies that you should never listened to in the first place. And so the day is coming when I come and I destroy all of this, one of the things I'm going to destroy is all these false prophets. And then when they shut up because they don't exist anymore, there won't be all these flattering, nonsensical lies for you to be like, I wonder what this is going to come true, because it's never going to come true, because it was never true. Right? What he's saying is, part of the blindness and deafness that comes from rebellion is we listen to the wrong people. We don't listen to the people that really love us. We don't listen to the people who really fear the Lord. We don't really listen to the people who are wise. We don't listen to the people who know something about the future about how we really develop as human beings, about how we really can be healed from our hurts in the deepest, most meaningful, most spiritual kind of way. We don't listen to people who are concerned about our heart and therefore our conscience and therefore our moral center. We listen to people who lie to us and flatter us and tell tell us we're fantastic. And it destroys us. And then we wonder why all these prophetic words they say about the good things that are supposed to happen never happen. Because they were never true. And friends, I fear that a lot of us have the name Christian written above the like little moniker of our immaterial selves, and yet we have so bought into Christian-ish flatterers that we really don't know who to listen to and who not to listen to. Friends, this is an incredibly important moment in human history where everybody can talk to you through technologies, where all kinds of people with some very strange notions about what it means to be human have very large voice boxes, and where we have to be as discerning as we've ever had to be about who is flattering us, who is creating the divination of lies through pseudoscience, and like little funny political discourses, and like humorous mockeries on TikTok, and blah, 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 freaking blah. Some of you are thinking about me saying that word, and you endure the most horrific profanities towards the truth of God in what you listen to in your lives constantly. And I don't mean 
like verbal profanities. I mean truth profanities. Amen. Still doesn't even bother us. And that's, that's not good. Okay, I'm going to keep going here. All right. The fourth is blind and deaf to the need for urgency. Right? What, is it, what do they say about Ezekiel's word? So Ezekiel's word, they know it's true. They know he's a real prophet. And so what are they going to do? Are they going to repent? Because he's, he's a real prophet. And they're like, well, yeah, he's a real prophet. But the stuff he's talking about, it's like way in the future. It's what—we I mean, don't really have to do anything right now because it's way in the future. Listen, if a prophet who's—that is, someone who's really speaking for God, tells us that we are sinning, as we're doing things in blindness and foolishness and wickedness, we're doing things that offend the Lord and break us and hurt other people, they are inherently unjust in a form of a kind of violence, they are idolatrous, right? Like, and you're like, well, when should I start doing something about this? And you're like, well, I don't have to do something for a while. How self-involved do you have to be to be like, this is who I am, I've got time. You know the proper response is? It's like, can we make a time machine to go back in time so I can stop this? Like, I, I wish I could go back the first time I ever did anything like this and shake myself and be like, don't do that. Don't be that person. Turn to the Lord. Seek wisdom. Fear Him. Don't create this rebellion-based blindness and deafness in your life. Nobody wants it from you. Nobody deserves that from you. God deserves your love and devotion. He's done everything for you. Turn to him right now and never turn away. And so if you can't go back in time, what is the time in which you should do something about this? And the answer is right now. Right? Like it's always so weird when people are like, you know, listen, if you die without Jesus, I mean, you die in your sins. And that doesn't look good for your final judgment. And people are like, yeah, you know, before I, you know, before I die, I should, I should probably accept Jesus, maybe. Right? And you're like, okay, first, it's, people are like, well, you could get hit by a car. Right? That is not compelling to a 17-year-old. You know what I'm saying? They're like, no, I'm not. And then, so then, then you can say this. Well, listen, if you know you should repent and you don't repent, right? You know there's this blindness, this rebellion, and you don't turn to God. Here's the, here's the thing. You grow harder. And you can get to a point of finalized hardness while you're still alive. And so if you put off coming to Jesus to a certain date, but you reach an irreparable hardness before that, buddy, you're done. Right? Which is not a bad argument, biblically speaking. There's this growing hardness. You can have a seared conscience, all that kind of stuff. That's real, right? But that's kind of beside the point. If you know you really should repent— because there's stuff you're doing that really is wrong, that you really owe your life to the Lord, and you should turn to Him in real faith, that you should fear the Lord and serve Him, and submit yourself to His good, pleasing, and perfect will. If you don't repent right this second, what does that say? It means all you care about is fire insurance. All you care about is yourself. All you care about is yourself not paying a price. You don't care about the good. You don't care about the truth. You don't care about beauty. You don't care about nobility. You don't care about God. You don't care about anything good at all, because you're just trying to put off your moral and spiritual responsibility, put off a real moral and spiritual character and identity as long as you possibly can. What does that say about you? Now listen, if you're trying to figure out if this is true, okay, you shouldn't try to believe something you don't think is true. Like, I get that. But it might be true. You better pursue whether or not it's true. And if God in your conscience and by His Spirit has convicted you, that is, 
you have an internal strong sense, you know that it is in fact true, you can't wait. Do you understand? You can't wait. It's not like a, no, like, today's, please get saved today because I don't want to see you go out here and get hit by a bus. No, if you have been hit with the weight of the truth, you must obey it. How could you do otherwise for another second? And why would you want to? Right? Even, I want, what I want you to see is, because you're like, well, I don't, I don't know. Okay, there's a couple things we need to recognize. The first is this, is that the result of this, these kinds of blindness increasing and advancing their life, like, this is a progressive condition. Do you understand? That, I don't mean that politically. I mean that medically, okay? That, like, if you are of a stubborn house, and in that stubbornness, because of pride, you are experiencing these forms of blindness, these blindnesses are progressing through your moral and spiritual systems and creating an increased hardness and even worse forms of blindness. Now, there was this verse in the passage that said this. You're going to try to run. The king of Babylon is going to catch you. He's going to take you to Babylon. You're not going to see it. This is about the king. You won't see it, and you're going to die there. Did you catch that? You're going to— you're going to get caught. You're going to get taken to Babylon. You're not going to see Babylon, but you're going to die in Babylon. That seems odd, right? It says in the prophecy that they were going to—that Ezekiel was supposed to blindfold himself, right? You're like, maybe something's connected to that, right? Well, what actually happens is in um, 2 Kings 25. And here's what it says. So the ninth month of the year of Zedekiah's reign, in the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. <laughs> right? I mean, that's, that's weird. Right? He's mad. He encamped outside the city wall, built siege works all around it. The city was kept under siege until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. That by the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe that the city, that there was no food for the people to eat. Then the city wall was broken through. The whole army fled at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden. Nobody knows exactly what that means. The gate between the walls? But anyway, <clears throat> I'll get to that in a minute. King's Garden. Though the Babylonians were surrounding the city, they fled towards the Arabah, but the Babylonian army pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All of his soldiers were separated from him and scattered, and he was captured. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah. That's in Syria. It's, um, if you're attacking west from Babylon, that's like the city that you stay in if you're like the king, because you can like get dispatches from everywhere and, and organize your war. That's why it's at Riblah. All right. You probably really, really wanted to know that. All right. Babylon, Jericho, okay, where sentence was pronounced on him. They killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Then they put out his eyes, bound him with a bronze shackle, and took him to Babylon. Now this prophecy was four years before the siege started. The siege was two more years, so it was six years before that happened. Now, I cannot really boost your faith with that, because apologetically, to prove that Ezekiel was written four years before 
2 Kings 25, 2,500 years ago is just not something you can do historically. Nobody can prove it didn't happen that way. Nobody can prove it did. It's just too far in the past, document-wise. But here's the thing. That wasn't true for the people in this story. Right? The people of Israel heard this before, and it affected them profoundly, right? Like, if you look at chapter 12, I encourage you to study this this week, right? Connect um, 2 Kings 25 and um, Ezekiel 12 and read through it. It is one of the most direct, clear, and predictive passages of God saying something was going to happen before it happened, and then it exactly happening in a really strange way. And some people are like, well, it was just written like that afterwards. Okay, first of all, that's just conjecture, right? Um, Non-believing scholars say that because they don't believe in prophecy, right? If you're open to the idea that God exists and there could be prophecy, then the question is, well, what evidence would there be for that? Well, the word for like wall and like key words in the two different discourses aren't the same Hebrew words. If you, if you, if you assess passages for collusion, there's no evidence for verbal collusion in these two passages. So you can't use the—there's a passage in Jeremiah that's almost identical to this passage in 2 Kings. They look much more similar to each other. So you could say, like, well, maybe, like, Jeremiah's and 2 Kings got edited so everybody would know what happened, but you can't use it. One as proof of the other. Ezekiel does not fit that. Right? For example, dig through the wall. You, they're going to dig through the wall, but they go, they go out of the gate between the walls. What does that mean? Nobody knows what that means. But what we do know is there are 10 predictions in this passage of what would happen. They're going to go to captivity. The prince king is going to try to escape. He's not going to just face—he's not going to face the piper um, in the city, right? He will escape through a wall that's unexpected. He is—his sight is going to be covered so that he can't see. He's going to be caught. He's going to be brought to Babylon. He's not going to see Babylon. Whoops. Um, And he's going to die in Babylon. And then his people are going to be dispersed, and a few are going to be separated into exile. And then in chapter 11, if you read in verse 10, it says, you will die on the borders of Israel, right? Because in chapter 11, they were like, look, we're inside the city. We're protected. We're going to be fine. And God's like, nope, you're not going to die in the city, right? Because of the metaphor, we're in the cooking pot. We're protected, and the fire's going to burn everybody else up. He's like, no, you're not going to stay in the pot. You're going to get thrown out into the fire, and you're going to burn right? That's the metaphor God's using. And so when they leave, it says they go into the Arabah, and they get caught on the plains of Jericho. Where's Jericho? It's right on the Jordan River, right on the edge of the kingdom of Israel. They literally flee in that direction, and the Babylon, even though the Babylonians are surrounded the city, they get through because they go through this tiny little gate, wall, hole, who knows, but they, they, the people who surround the city, they've caught them by surprise. Why? Because it's, it's very, it's likely that the Babylonians broke into the north side of the city because that's where every army that's ever gotten into Israel has ever broken into. That gate area, that place where they're referring to, is at the southeastern corner of the city. So somehow the king and some of the soldiers snuck out while the rest of the army was moving around to the north to enter the city and to pillage it, right? And they thought that they could sneak away, and they got through the lines, which never should happen, right? And they got as far as the Arabah, all the way to the plains of Jericho, and that's where they got caught. Well, how did that happen? And the answer is that providentially, that's exactly what God said was going to happen. And it was one of the most unlikely military possibilities. Right? It says in, uh, in Jeremiah that the king, the, the leaders of the Babylonian army destroyed the northern wall, and then they set up chairs, and they just sat there during the day. Because they broke through during the day, Right? And you're like, well, then they would go in and they would just burn and destroy everything. And they didn't. They did something. It's just like they got all the generals. They just they sat. They're like, why don't you come out to us? 
And they gave Zedekiah a chance. Why? Because they said, anybody who comes out to us, we won't kill. But in the ancient world, if you made an army beat you by siege, they killed everyone. That was, that was your motivation not to do a two-year siege. If you opened your doors and you let yourself be conquered, they didn't kill you. But if you, like, made them wait around for two or three years, when they broke through the gates, they were killing everybody. And so the king of Babylon destroys the gates, and instead of going in and killing everybody immediately, he sits back, and he goes, he waits for them to come out to him. Because he's already said, if you come to me, I won't kill you. Which was God's statement and promise to the prophets. Even at that moment of judgment, if even then, when there's nothing left, no hope, if you still come out to me, I will spare you. Nope. Zedekiah goes, okay, they're not coming in the city. All right, pack our stuff. We're going to break out the southeast wall. We're going to get away. We're going to run. Only God could have seen that, and he did. And he predicted that he would go to Babylon, but he wouldn't see it because God knew that Nebuchadnezzar was mad enough and would be mad enough when Zedekiah tried to run that he would kill his sons in front of him and put out his eyes. So he would go to Babylon, and he would die there, but he would never see it. Let's end on that happy note. Just kidding. Um, in the book of Isaiah, which is the generation before this, Isaiah wants to go to God's people to try to give them one last chance before this last, last chance. And God says, go to the people and speak to them. He says, speak to them and say, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. He says, make the heart of these people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Now, you might think, well, that's not very nice, right? But it's one of the reasons why I bring up again and again this concept was called a self-defeating prophecy. How would you react if somebody said that to you? Right? Like, if you say to your kid, who's supposed to get their homework done this weekend, listen, I know what you're going to do. You're not going to do your homework till Sunday night. You're going to procrastinate. You're going to be exhausted by the time you do it. You're not really going to get it done, and you're going to go to school on Monday, and you're going to flunk. That's what's going to happen. Why would you say that to your kid? Why would you be that mean? And the answer is, because you're hoping you'll make them angry enough <laughs> to say, Forget you, Dad. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start working at 5 o'clock on Friday. Right? <clears throat> because you know darn well that's what's going to happen unless you give this prophecy so as to so confront them about their impending doom that they'll be like, well, no, I'm going to do the opposite. Right? God's like, he's like, you know what will happen if they listen to me? We don't want that. <clears throat> if they listen to me, they'll turn to me. And you know what I'll do if they turn to me? Even though they've been horrific for like 330 years— I'll heal them. We don't want that. Right? And this is, the, this is what Jesus quotes in Matthew when he says, he says, when he's telling these parables, he's like, I tell the parables because I want people to be ever hearing, but ne ever hearing, but never perceiving, right? Because otherwise, they'll come to me and believe. But he says at the end of it, he says, but blessed are your eyes because they see. He says that not just to the twelve, but to all the people who've believed. Right? Because there's always been a group of people who heard these prophecies and was like, I, I quit, man. I'm like, I want to be God. It's like, I, I repent. I'm done. There's always been a people who have responded when they've said nobody, when God said nobody's going to respond. And think about what Jesus' major miracles were, right? The most common miracle of Jesus is casting out demons. That's the most common. What's the second most common? Right? Specifically, blindness 
and deafness. Before modern medicine, were those the only two major ailments among human beings? No! But there's three things that he healed more than anything else in the Gospels. Blindness, deafness, and paralysis. Those three things. Why? You think those are just literal? You don't think those are a metaphor for something? You don't think casting out demons was supposed to point to a bigger thing? Him raising the dead wasn't supposed to point to a bigger thing? What was him healing the blind, healing the deaf, and healing the paralyzed supposed to symbolize? What is the larger message? And the answer is, Jesus is God's blindness and healing cure. He is the stump of Jesse that comes two verses after that in Isaiah that says, until this stump will grow after I've cut it down, that that someone is going to come whose main capacity is, unlike all history before him, to cure blindness and deafness. That is, to bring a message that could so cut to the human heart and to be so descriptive of our real experience and to be so passionate in its sacrifice for us and to be so focused on our real issues and to speak to us with such candor, such hardness, and such kindness simultaneously that it would have the ability and the capacity to cure blindness. To draw forth the people of the rebellious house of humanity. You see, when, when Ezekiel gave this, when the first son of man, Ezekiel, gave this prophecy, um, there's four years left. There's still four years left. That's a long time, right? There's like some, like six-year-olds are like, that's a long time. That's like a lifetime, you know? It's a long time, but in the scope of 374 years, the last four years is not very long, Right? There's time left, but not much. And that's the right attitude. There's time left. There's time left. God is reaching out to you. God cares for you. God wants you to come to his Christ. God wants to release his wisdom to any speck of humility that might exist in your heart. He wants to conform your mind to the image of Christ and release you from the bondage of worldliness. He wants to um, release you from your slavery to your flatterers. He wants to put in you the urgency to become who you've meant to be. He wants you never again to live under the slavery of sin. And he wants you not to eat your bread in terror and drink your water with anxiety. He wants you to have the peace of God that comes from the fear of the Lord. I was listening—I'll end with this. I was listening to a, um, a podcast yesterday on the life of um, St. Patrick. And, um, you know, there's a lot of things said about Patrick that actually are false. His own writings say that they're false. Um, he, he didn't fly. He, uh, he didn't do amazing, incredible miracles. Um, but one of the things that—there's um, uh, a lot of tales told about Druids that they were, like, nice, earthy people that, like, loved nature and stuff like that. They were, they were horrible people who, like— I'm not going to go into the terrible, bloody, horrific stuff that they did, but they were not nice people, okay? No historian thinks that who studies them relative to other cultures, okay? And one of the things that led piles of Druids to Jesus Christ through um, St. Patrick was this. This I think this is hilarious. I wish I I could have this ministry. I wish people would pay me to have this ministry, okay? By how um, St. Patrick slept— That was it. They watched him sleep. And he was at peace. And everybody's trying to kill him. Everybody hated him. 
but he would sleep. And they'd be like, how does he do that? Because th their culture was so full of murder, and so full of blood, and so full of— the whole economy of, of Ireland at that time was based on slavery. That's how Patrick got there in the first place, is that he was— like a thousand people from the main British Isle were captured in one, at one time by pirates, just taken to Ireland to be slaves. Like the whole culture of Ireland was built on slavery. Everything, right? And so they did not have a good conscience, but they were good at making alcohol. And so they, everybody drank themselves to sleep. They were like in a drug-induced stupor for hundreds of years. And this guy shows up who can just sleep. <laughs> and if you are a blood-handed murderer who enslaves people and drinks yourself into this like, like light sleep where you wake up strangely and it's chemically induced and you don't know who's going to turn on you and kill you, and you watch this strange British monk just lay down and sleep, not afraid somebody's going to cut his throat, at peace with the world and with his God. You're like, oh my gosh, this is weird. And thousands of people come to Christ. Is American culture, with its billion, multi-billion dollar anxiety pharmaceutical industry, truly less anxious than Middle Ages Ireland. I don't know. I don't know. I just know we're crazy anxious. And some of that is probably our hormones, and some of that might be blah, 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 blah. I don't know. But I know that there was a, there was a Christian at one point who saved half an island because he was at peace enough to sleep. And they weren't. And that came from the fear of the Lord, which took away a blindness that sent him to a lost people who he could face his own death and sleep in the face of it because he had the love of God shed abroad in his heart. Father, um, please use something in that sermon to help each person here. Please build an urgency in us. Please free us from things as we sing these last songs, as we consider some of these things. Please do something in us. Even if we don't sing a word the rest of this service, help us to reflect and, and speak to us in our conscience. Help us to know what to let go of, what to repent of, what to turn to you about, what inhibition to throw aside so that we can really have an open heart to you. Free us from our blindness. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. In this moment, Holy Spirit, please help us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.